When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Sidney Stern, author of the book, The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics, published in 2019 by the University Press of Mississippi. This is the first dual biography of two brothers who played a major role in the golden age of Hollywood. Sidney traces the lives of the two, beginning with Herman's career as a theater writer and most famously co-author of Citizen Kane, as well as Joe's more successful work as a Hollywood writer, producer, and director. We also touch on the current Netflix film, Mank, which revolves around the writing of the Kane screenplay. Welcome, Sydney Stern. Hi, Sydney. How are you today? I am great, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So we're talking about your book, The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics, was published in 2019 by the University Press of Mississippi, and I'm excited to speak with you about it. Thank you. Now, I usually stick to newer books because, obviously, the title is New Books and Film, but yours has won a number of awards and has obviously been well-reviewed, and I knew I remember seeing it come by because University Press of Mississippi is usually pretty good with getting me information, but for whatever reason, it didn't happen at the time, so I'm glad we're having the time to talk about it now. But before we get into the book, let's get some details about your background. Uh, You're not from academics, per se, although obviously you have advanced degree, but um, you started as a business writer, uh, journalism. Right. And yes, my academic, my, I'm in a couple of biography groups, and I'm probably the only one with an MBA in that group. A lot of people have been, seem to have advanced academic degrees, but I kind of fell into that. I worked at Time Life, and um, I was a reporter researcher at Fortune magazine, which was really fun and very interesting. And at that time, it was a monthly and so we went into stories in great depth and that I moved into that. And my first book was a, um, the toy business, the toy land, the high stakes game of the toy industry, which was an overview of the toy business. And then after I wrote that book, I said to my agent, I really love doing narrative because I made each the, the third chapter, each third chapter of the book was this running story of the development of a, of a, a licensed toy, a toy, you know, a, a big um, toy line. And I loved doing that. So I said, I want to do that. And he suggested doing a biography of Gloria Steinem. 
And I said, because I'm an intense, avid, rabid feminist. And he said, I said, why would she want that? And he, got, he said, no, unauthorized. So I ended up doing this unauthorized biography of Gloria. And I was a history major in undergrad. And I love history. And biography is really telling history through a person's or people's lives. So I stuck with that. So yeah. here I am with two people now. It's, uh, I always wonder what leads from one to the other as far as writing. Obviously, the toy business came direct. I could see that came directly from uh, your work in business writing. And there are a number of great business writers who have branched out, especially in recent times, and written some really great things, uh, not necessarily 100% business-related, but still very interesting. They're great writers, uh, people who write for business, because they have to reach their audiences a certain way, different necessarily sometimes than other topics. And I'm glad you told how you uh, came up with the Gloria Steinem biography, given that it wasn't your idea per se, but uh, something that was suggested to you. Right, right. That agent died, but he came up with both of those book topics. And then it took me a long time to get to, to this book. Um, I went through several topics that couldn't sell. I mean, you, ha you not only have to find something you're interested in, you have to find something a publisher thinks they can sell enough copies of to be willing to publish it. Right. So it's tough. So that obviously brings me to my next question, which is why film? This is not something that you see per se in your other writing. Why did you just, was it more the characters or was it that you decided to write about the Mankiewicz's or was it something related to film that's always interested you? None of the above. It was very serendipitous. I was, I had, I can't remember what I was working on, but a friend Carl Rollison, who had become the series editor at University Press of Mississippi, sent an email to some of his biographer friends saying, we're looking for submissions. And my first reaction was, oh, I don't do academic presses. And that went along my way. And then after a few days, I thought, and what is it you're so busy with that you can't look at an academic press? So I started thinking about who I could write about and and. Film really is, I tell people, it's like if I decided to write a, a biography of a New York Yankee, there's so much material, there's so much knowledge that you need for this film that people just, you know, just spill off and, oh, well, he was in this inning and blah, blah, blah. And it's the same with Hollywood. So I looked into it and I did not want to do um, a, an actor. I wanted to do somebody creative behind the scenes. And I knew about Herman Mankiewicz because... Of Citizen Kane, but also because his son, Frank Mankiewicz, was in my Gloria Steinem biography. He was, he's, he was a big political person, and, and I had interviewed him on the phone and I quoted him several times, and I knew that he had this interesting father. So I read Herman's biography, which was written in 1978, and I was very intrigued, and that led me to Joe's biography, his brother, which was also published in 1978. And then I thought, hmm, I think the sum of these two is more interesting than the individual part. So I decided to, and there had been no joint biography of the two of them. So I got started and yes, film was new to me and I had to do a tremendous amount of learning and catch up. And the, the business background helped somewhat because of the studio system. You know, it was a business, it was a factory. These people, the writers, actors, everybody were um, employees. They were factory workers. 
helping put out a product. So to understand that, it was helpful to have a business knowledge. And um, but to really get up to speed on all those movies took me years. I, and it was really fun, of I, course. That's so the great, part of it. Great, you hope that it's yeah. fun. Um, yeah, great I fun. Have interviewed a number of biographers and people who have talked about this early time of Hollywood, and you tend to read parts of the stories pretty normally. You know how things started because almost every one that I've talked to, it's people who were involved or got started in the business right at the beginning or close to the beginning. So um, we get that in, in your book. And as you say, the studio system, it once it developed, it started rolling off on its own. But it's really to, to learn about how the system started and how it happened. And um, it's just such an interesting concept. And, and there's so much related to uh, things like copyright and uh, patents and all those other things that end up making a big difference as to how these uh, uh, these things happen, and they're all business-related. Well, actually, um, that was one of the many sections of the book where I wrote tons of history about the Edison Trust and how these inventors on the East Coast um, held on to those patents and wanted these very boring little movies made and people to escape them went out West. And many of the, the people who started the movie business were theater owners and they needed product to put into their theater. So it, it kind of integrated backwards, but yeah, I had to cut a lot of that out. Sometimes you just have to drop people in and assume this is going on. There, there were many areas where I have reams of writing that never saw the light of day. And that's one of them. It's very interesting. And, of course, I have shelves full of <laughs> books about the founding of that. Yeah, one of my favorites was a biography. Uh, Vonda Kreft wrote a biography of William Fox. Yes. And a lot of very, people don't even good. know him and anymore other than the name. And this, what he was involved with, he's one of the major people who helped break up the, the monopoly that, that Edison was trying to to do and he basically paid for the court cases out of his own pockets just to try to break things up and uh so that whole idea of why we were able to get past what who knows what the film industry would have been had that not been uh changed as time went on so obviously the Mankiewicz's uh we want to talk about their background and and the way you set up the book makes sense you other uh, you did a little bit of a prologue but then we follow them chronologically, starting first with Herman's background, where he was in Hollywood first, and, and his background, because how much older is he than, was he than Joe? 15 years? Almost 12 years. 12 yeah. years. So, yeah. He was both a father figure and an older brother, and then a burden. <laughs> right, and then of course, then there's the middle part of the book where we talk about both of them in Hollywood at the same time, and then of course, Herman died quite early, uh, and then Joseph Mankiewicz had a long career afterwards, and and uh, it's it's such an interesting way of looking at it because you do the comparisons, and you, even though uh, Herman's gone, he's still there, and at least in background, and and we know that uh, uh, you know the, the two of them were are linked so much, so like a lot of people from Hollywood, people from that early period, and not just Hollywood, because obviously they weren't in Hollywood when they first uh, uh, started, uh, were, were born. What background, the Mankiewicz's father, uh, who was obviously also very important in the story, as they call Pops, uh, where where did Pop, where did he, 
what was his background and how did it not or did help with uh, deciding that uh, that Herman decided he wanted to go into a creative uh, work? Well, first of all, um, my original title was When Life Louses Up the Script. And my publishers didn't want that because they wanted words like brothers and Mankiewicz and Hollywood in the title for searchable words. But it was very, but my point was, um, it was very accidental. It was very accidental that they ended up in Hollywood. But before that, even being creative, as you mentioned, was not what their father had in mind for them. Their father was an immigrant from Germany, from Berlin. He was highly, he was educated. He hadn't graduated from the University of Berlin, but he um, was very educated and very cultured. Their mother was less educated, but I don't think she was uncultured. Um, but the father was the dominant intellectual force in their lives. And he, in later life, became an academic and thought that was the highest calling anyone could pursue to teach the young. And, he, and, his, and both sons were brilliant, very high performers from an early age, which meant their expectations for them, for their father's expectation for them and their expectations for themselves were very high. And he expected each one of them to go into academics in which they had no interest. And Herman, when he, he was at Columbia, they both went to Columbia University very young and graduated very young. It's still in their teens. Um, he, Herman wrote the varsity play. This was a big deal at Columbia. He was in with theater friends like Oscar Hammerstein and Lawrence Hart, Larry Hart of Rogers and Hart. And so he spent many hours doing that. He was interested in journalism. He was interested in humor. So while the father had charm, I, I think he was a little <coughs> heavy handed. This was not what he wanted for them. But <coughs> Herman eventually went into journalism and then um, spent some time in Germany after World War II, World War I, 1920 to 1922, and then came back was, and was the assistant theater editor under George S. Kaufman at the New York Times. And he was the first theater critic when the New Yorker started in 1925. So his was a theatrical world, although Herman was very interested in politics and history. That was his great love. And for decades after his children and his grandchildren always say, oh, he should have been a pundit. I think they feel he should have had Frank Mankiewicz's career. Frank commented on politics and everything. But to me, that ignores the whimsicality of Herman and the, and the make-believe that Herman um, gravitated to. So once he was back in New York in 1922, Herman eventually wanted to write plays. And he was collaborating with George S. Kaufman and Mark Connolly, who were both successful playwrights on plays in 1926 when he eventually went out to L.A. to get enough money to pay back a gambling debt because Herman already had problems with alcohol and gambling. So he was always in debt and he was always in trouble. So that's how he went to Hollywood because the money was so much better by the 20s than you could make in journalism. He was making $80 a week at the Times. Um, he was making $400 a week to start at Paramount. So you can see why he moved out there, but he didn't expect to stay. Again, that's that was my when life blouses up the script theme um, that he thought he'd be out there for maybe a couple of years and then come back to his real life. The Algonquin friends like Dorothy Parker, the plays, Broadway, 
the gr- nitty gritty New York. Of course, happen. at this time, Hollywood and the and the movies were not considered to be high class. So, um, the people he, as you point out, with he he was with the most. Obviously, theater people did not look down on Hollywood at the point at this point and continued to for quite a while. So it's not a big surprise that uh, he would consider, I'm just going to go make some money and come back. But as as you point out in the book and you detail it quite well, from the very beginning, he was always one of those folks who wasn't well-disciplined, clearly had issues making with money and was was constantly taking other jobs to help pay for the previous, for the other work. And he, you know, this kind of thing comes through very early on. So it's, it's not a surprise that this would lead him to say, well, I've got to find ways to make money quickly. And and that becomes, unfortunately for him, uh, a constant theme throughout his life in Hollywood. Yes. And in fact, one of the things I, I had originally thought was that he was a cliched script screenwriter. They went out there when he first went, it was silent. There was no dialogue. And he was just there to write titles, those little captions in silent movies, which, yes, that was beneath his capabilities for sure. But sound came in in 1927. And by 1930, it was pretty much all sound. So then he was writing dialogue and then onto screenplays and things like that. But I thought because they made a lot of money to do not very um, interesting work and work that they couldn't control, they would sometimes they'd work very hard on something and then it was changed. And that was very discouraging in contrast to, to theater. And so um, I forgot what I was telling you. <laughs> well, oh, yes, that I that I that the, the, the uh, cliche is that screenwriters drank because they were so unhappy out there. And I and I wanted to make it clear, he had a drinking problem before he went out there. He didn't get a drinking problem from being discouraged at being a screenwriter. He already had that. And he was self-destructive his whole life. And it's it what's so right from the beginning, and we can obviously say it was the studio system that helped this, that the writer in Hollywood to this day even is still considered to be lower on the on the list of people of importance unless you're actually that's why so many directors started as writers and became directors because they felt it was the only way they could control their own work and it's it's one of the reasons why television in in that area is so different because there the writers are largely the people who are uh, in charge that's why there's so many producers on television shows they're all writers who are who this way they can control their work uh, but you're right. It's just unbelievable in to this day now that writers are still out of control and they can be fired on a whim and somebody else can come around and becomes an issue with him, obviously. And that's things like getting credit for what you do, where it becomes very easy uh, to lose that because of getting thrown off a project and changes being made. So it's right. Well, that, I mean, you've just described exactly the dynamic that made Joe go into directing later on. But I would also say the movie Mank that just came out about Herman, I I was fascinated by the economy of film compared to print because I spent a lot of time or maybe even a few paragraphs, I don't know, um, explaining how low what you just said, how vulnerable writers are. And in the movie, (laughs) Louis B. Mayer says to Irving Thalberg, who's that? And Thalberg goes, just a writer. That just summed it up, you know, okay. 
three words and you've you've placed writers in the hierarchy of the Hollywood studio system very economically. And so as you point out that he even though he was getting and got more and more involved in writing early on he still wanted to keep with theater that was something and he was going back and forth still between uh New York and um and California somewhat i mean he wasn't spending his entire days in Holly, in in California but because he was still trying to get things produced even though overall what did he have any kind of real success as a as a theater writer? The short answer is no, but I always give a long answer, right? The the when he left for Hollywood, he had these two plays in the works with Connolly and Kaufman. He didn't really get to go back and forth to work on them, which turned out to be more of a problem than he had imagined. He thought he could go back and forth, but he had to stay there and work. He was sent back periodically to recruit writers. He, he found other journalists and they populated the studios, but the two plays were both flops and um, he went on to write other plays. He was always trying to write himself out of Hollywood, but nothing, another one was produced later on in the thirties, but they weren't very good. And, and part of it may have been because, I mean, Connolly and, and Kaufman were very successful playwrights, but Herman didn't stick to it enough. And I also think perhaps like Kaufman's best plays were with Edna Ferber and she had different skills than Kaufman had. And Herman and, and George Kaufman were both kind of flippant, witty people and maybe the, the um, other skills that maybe a Joe could have brought um, were not there, from, were not present from Herman. So he was a better movie writer, even though that wasn't what he valued. Now, who did he, I, I, you know, some of these are people that I'm pretty sure about some of these. He was working with certain people when he got to Hollywood early on. Who were some of the actors and, and movies that he started working on? Wasn't he involved working with the, the Marx Brothers early on? Yes. Well, before the, the Marx Brothers were, he was a producer for those. He actually knew the Marx Brothers from New York. And um, he produced the Marx Brothers' first two movies that were made in Hollywood. And before that, he wrote some movies that, that William Powell was in. You know, this was, this was, he was there from, he was at Paramount from 1926 to about 1933. So he wrote a lot of movies there and uh, the Marx Brothers were the most memorable. And he evidently was the one who kept the anarchy going in their movies. He, the, their later movies have more plot and more romance maybe, but Herman thought, just be crazy. And, and that's what he loved about them. And actually, um, Groucho and Harpo were friends of his. And, and he would see them socially and had seen Harpo, who was a big um, Algonquin friend also. And they were, a couple of them were excellent poker players, which, by the way, Herman played a lot of poker, but he lost. He wasn't good at it. So he probably lost a lot of money to Harpo Marx, too. Well, that's it. I mean, that's one of the things that keeps coming through uh, in the book is <laughs> that theme. he's he, yeah. he's the only thing, unfortunately, he was, quote unquote, good at seemed to be drinking. And mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, and his writing was great, but it seemed like, as I mentioned before, there was a lot of lack of discipline on a lot of what he was doing. But it turned out to be great work, but he always seemed to be under deadlines and being pushed to get work done. Because he didn't value it. 
he would come in and help other people at the last minute. And um, he wrote, I mean, he wrote some wonderful films, but he, you know, we, we remember him for one big one, Citizen Kane. Right. So then, so at this point, you know, he's out in Hollywood and, and he's in his career as it is. And suddenly then Joe comes, you know, Joe, as you say, 12 years is his junior. And obviously that's a pretty big difference in age. I mean, it's one thing to say that two people are only a couple years apart, but 12 is a pretty big difference. What was different about uh, uh, Joe's original, I know you said he was through academics, but what led him into this world? Well, first of all, Joe had a very different father because as first generation Americans, you know, it was a very intense kind of background and their parents were struggling when Herman was a child. Herman was born in New York. His father was drinking a lot himself and abusive. And they moved to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where his father became the editor of a German language um, newspaper. So then he became a personage in town. And um, when they moved back to New York, it was for Herman to go to undergrad at Columbia and for the father to go to grad school and begin his academic career. So for the next eight years or so, eight or 10 years, the father was gone all the time and Herman made his way into the world. But Joe, instead of having the father being really mean to him and all over him, neglected him. And Joe said that was a good thing. They moved all over the place. <clears throat> he didn't particularly put down roots. And then he went to Columbia and their father expected him to go into academia and he had no interest. Joe already had this glamorous older brother in whose footsteps he longed to follow. And, and I use some letters where Joe's clearly trying to impress him. You know, he's being witty and, and, and creating these interesting and funny pictures to impress his older brother. And at some point, Herman, he was he went to Europe, as Herman had done, and um, ran out of money, ran a little into debt. And Herman said, for heaven's sakes, come out to L.A., come out to Hollywood. So Herman got Joe a job at uh, Paramount. Now, Herman went out as somebody. Herman had a track record and Herman was treated as someone. Um, Joe was a 75 or $60 a week writer, a lowly worm at that point. It was 1929, so they were making the shift to sound, but because the theaters weren't all set up for it, they still had silent versions. And Joe was put to work doing titles on movies. Yeah, that transition period is so interesting. And it, yeah. it, this is one of those things that I like to constantly, I, I'm constantly reading more and more, you know, so many books that I've that I've interviewed folks for are this kind of periods where things, you know, why, and I think that's the history person in me where I want to know why. And it's always so important to understand you know, the changes and when they happened. And it you can really make a good transition to see why things happened the way they did. And, and, and that's why uh, this whole issue of sound and what, how it started. And, and as you point out, the technical aspects of it. Of course, it was things like the fact that the studios, in many cases, owned the theaters. And then that made a big difference as well. As, and it was, it was a major portion of how the studio system worked so well is because they controlled their own content. Right. And as, uh, as far as sound goes and how it affected the movies, I, I actually put this in, I think I put it in a note, not in the actual book, but Singing in the Rain, the movie, shows you the transition to sound in a, you know, in a very economical and fun way that 
first the the the, the um, microphones had to be still and the actors had to move around the mics. It was just it, it wasn't seamless at all. Sort of like all of us doing Zoom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Watching silent films, you can see that over time, actually pretty quickly, if you watch, you know, earlier silent films, obviously there's a lot of s- stable shots. But pretty quickly on, directors start to learn to move the camera and move the people around the camera and those kind of things. And so they get very involved in, in that aspect, understanding that it was a purely 100% visual medium at the time. I mean, you know, it's the only time we had pure cinema, so to speak, in that it was 100% visual. And But eventually, as you point out, then we went through the transition period where making sure the sound recording <laughs> took place sort of put everything back to stability, having to be stable and non-moving. So it took a while for that to change over. So obviously we had uh, Herman still working um, higher up in the, in the, in, in Hollywood. And and Joe was a journeyman writer, so to speak at the time. Uh, Did they have much um, interactions with each other given that they were brothers or did they pretty much stay on their separate paths at this point? No, I think, you know, Herman really was a father figure and a patron to Joe when he came out. And Joe was very much a go-getter with stars in his eyes. He was excited to be there. He was 19 years old. No, 29. Yeah, he he was not even 20 when he came out there, although he was a college graduate. And he, um, set records for how many uh, movies he could title in nine weeks and in a year and um, was had a very different attitude than Herman. But Herman, he made young friends and ran around with people like Spencer Tracy, became a friend. He was young and single and handsome and charming and, and very magnetic. But Herman also included him with his group of, of literate former theatrical friends and, and things like that. So he was part of their circle then later on when he uh, made his own way and became more successful, the families did not see as much of each other, but there was, um, if my, my short description of them is they were brothers and all that entails. There was love, there was aggravation, there was some competition and it was very different from the perspective of each of, each of the two, but it was uh, unloyalty. Right. So Herman, the other thing that, that, that we know about Herman, both from your books, and you seem to know this, you know, if you knew anything else about him prior to the book, is that he was also a very gregarious, outgoing person, and everybody liked being around him, that that seemed to be, he was, in a way, he was a hanger-on, but uh, I guess is the best way to put it, but he seemed to be one of those folks that, yes, he could write, but he could also he was one of those, you wanted him around because he was so entertaining and so interesting and so fun to be with. Yes, he was known for his one-liners, and and they're in anthologies. All the Hollywood anthologies have certain things that Herman did and certain stories Herman told, and people did want to have him around for that reason, except when he went out of control. And Joe was also like that. Joe doesn't have the one-liners, but he was a very um, interesting and fun person to be around. They were very erudite too. You know, they were just, they were appealing people. And of course it was as part of that, 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 that Herman actually became friends with, uh, William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies, which of course would 
<laughs> in many ways affect the, his career at the end or later on. But uh, one of the things that, that, that is so interesting, and you bring it on the book, and actually the film, which we can talk about later in more detail, Mank puts on, is that people liked being around Mankiewicz, but he also, as you point out, he has this streak in him where he can't always control himself, so to speak, and he makes, you know, and, and that sometimes goes against his, his, um, uh, self-interest. Right. As, <laughs> and, and things like working, being paid for work, but not really doing very much because he just doesn't have the self-control to do it sometimes. And nobody seems willing to push him or they seem perfectly happy with what they're getting from him. Uh, as far I, as I take it a step further and say, it's not just lack of self-control, it's active self-destruction. He, you know, that, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory um this quote is is a very good description of herman he just he could he would dry out periodically but he would go back on the bottle not exactly the way he was in this in the movie make but um that was a problem he all i besides the drinking and the gambling his other self-destructive pattern was mouthing off to bosses and getting himself fired all right. over town which he did right because, I mean, uh, obviously he was, as you point out, he was at Paramount. But then when did he go to MGM? He went to MGM in 1933. He uh, Paramount was in, they were all in trouble because right. of the Depression. MGM was in better shape than everybody else. And um, he left, uh, he was kind of pushed out. And this was right at the end of the Marx Brothers, those two Marx Brothers movies. And Paramount hired him back to work on a third and then pushed him back out again. So he went over to MGM with David O. Selznick, who had also been his boss at Paramount. Selznick had been the assistant to B.P. Schilberg, who was head of all the writers and head of production in Hollywood. And um, he was, again, a valued employee. Selznick wanted to make a splash. When he first came to MGM, he was the son-in-law of Mayer. And so his first production there was Dinner at Eight, which is, was an adaptation of the Kaufman-Ferber play, Dinner at Eight, from Broadway. And Herman um, adapted it. So he valued Herman's work. And again, Herman had an office next to Selznick, as he had next to Schilberg, as opposed to being in the writer's um, Warren Hatch, where all the writers were kept, uh, which was what would happen with Joe when he followed Herman to MGM, not on purpose, but it was the best place to be in the 30s. And so Joe ended up there the, the following year. What I, what, what, and this seems like a good time to talk about this because obviously one of the things the book has is just such great details of a lot of the background of the writing and changes that were being made and back and forth as far as how things were being filmed and things like that. What kind of material, I mean, did you use in order to put together such a great overview of what it was like to work in Hollywood during this period? Thank you. Thank you for the compliment. Um, it was a very different book for me to research than my other two, which were, I came out of a magazine background. I was used to basing my stories on interviews and then obviously going back and, and finding documents to, to make sure I had things correct. But with two subjects who had died, and Joe's, Joe, Herman died in 1953, Joe died in 1993. So Herman's trail was really cold. 
and um, his, I did do interviews and some of them were very important parts of, of my sources. Herman's two sons, Don and Frank, who were born in 1922 and 1924 were still alive. And I spent, a, and, and Frank lived in Washington, Don lived in Los Angeles and I interviewed them a lot. Joe's four children were all alive at the time. One has since died. And I interviewed all of them at great length, uh, but very important. And, and Joe's, Joe was married three times and his widow who was 20 years younger than he was still alive. And she was an extremely helpful source and she lived near me. And while she had donated his papers to the Margaret Herrick Library, which is the Academy's library, um, which was probably the most important source, um, Rosemary had kept his diaries and I would go over there on Saturdays and sit in her basement, not because I was Cinderella and being sent down there, but that's where the diaries were. So I'd sit down in this damp basement with the diaries and take notes. And um, that was a source that nobody else had. Plus his papers were donated in 2009, which was his, the 100th anniversary of Joe's birth. So um, the Herrick very generously let me use his papers, which I'm pretty sure were in good shape when they, she donated them. And that's why they let me use them even as they were processing them. So I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. I live in New York, flying out there, staying for about a week, spending the days in the archives and coming back. It was a very um, expensive process and a very time consuming process. And for those who've worked in archive, archives, it's very um, cumbersome in a way because they're only open certain hours. They're freezing. I had about six layers on because they keep it cold because of the documents. I could only use one folder at a time very carefully. And one of the most stringent parts rules was that I could only have of the archival material as opposed to clip files that they also had 100 pages copied a year. And, you know, in my previous book, Gloria Steinem had given her papers to Smith. And I would just put little um, note, you know, file markers in the files, please copy this file, copy that, you know, and, and I'd have everything at home to work on. Because I wasn't allowed to copy much, I had to sit there and literally type notes from these files. And a couple of times, this might be more detailed than your listeners want, but my computer got banged and wasn't working Monday morning when I went in. So then I had to take handwritten notes and it was, it was very time consuming. And so that part was very hard. Plus one of the other issues, there are two other issues. One is that Hollywood is the land of make-believe. So a lot of the stories just weren't true. And it was very hard to dig back and, and find out how accurate things were. Sometimes I couldn't, I mean, there were stories told by Herman or told about Herman. And what I tried to do was go as far back as I could and get as close to the source as I could. For example, for some of the Herman anecdotes, I would find clips in, in gossip columns in the 40s. So it may or may not have been accurate, but it was more accurate than it became by the 50s, 60s, 70s, retelling in, into all the, the collections. And the other issue in researching that was uh, that I complained about for the 10 years that I was doing the book to anyone who would listen was that I had such an imbalance of material between the two subjects. It was supposed to, I signed a contract for a book about two men. And as I got deeper, I thought, how can I make it feel like you're reading a biography about two men and not about Joseph Mankiewicz plus a little about Herman, his brother? 
Joseph did many more movies of note. He had three wives. He had affairs with people like Joan Crawford and, and Judy Garland. So there was, and, and he had a living widow and, di and diaries. So I had all kinds of primary material that I did not have for Herman. And it was really a problem. And to my surprise, the, the reviews and so much of the treatment has responded to Herman. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, you just never know where what you're doing is going to uh, take you and how it's going to be received in the outside world. So that was that was really interesting. And, it, and, and Herman was a particular challenge. I still, just from an anecdote from the book, I always, the, one of the greatest parts of a movie that there ever was as far as way to make a movie was the opening scene of scenes of, of Wizard of Oz where it started in black and white or, or actually in the tinted version and then as soon as uh, they end up in Oz or she ends up in Oz it's suddenly in color and to this day I gotta wonder what that must have been like to people in the theater when they saw that and to find out that that was uh, Herman Mankiewicz's idea uh, to do that uh, even though he wasn't particularly involved with the, or was involved, but not uh, completely involved with the film, that that was his idea and that I actually did it was just, that just to me was genius. Well, it's interesting because he, he knew the Oz books very well and had read them to his children and did not want, the, he didn't think they should make a movie out of it. And he wrote a, a memo saying that, and they said, too bad, we're doing it anyway. So they, he was assigned to it. So he, so he said, well, you have to do it. I think you should make the, the Kansas scenes, not just black and white, but grays, dull grays. Don't make it sharp. And in contrast, show how dull her life was and then burst into color with Oz. So, yeah. And then he got taken off of it. You know, he, he was moved on. And that was uh, 1939 is actually when he lost his job at MGM. And he also worked at Columbia after that, but he was spiraling down. And, of course, that leads into probably what he's most known for, as you already pointed out, and that's his work with Orson Welles and Citizen, what became Citizen Kane. Uh, we don't obviously need to go into much detail about that entire story, except, except that you get really involved. You, you, I mean, there's been so many stories about how that movie was written and the whole story of him being... Uh, uh, had been hurt in an automobile accident, so they literally just put him in a, you know, Orson Welles had him taken to a, 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 a way to be to work on the script and do nothing else. And uh, uh, but yet, uh, as as it comes through more and more with other things that he did, he was doing it for the money. Yes, he he just casually um, was going. He had a ten week contract, and and he was out in the in a ranch in a dude ranch out in the middle of the desert. Um, not so much because he was injured, but to keep him away from drinking. Evidently, I think Sarah, his wife, found this dude ranch, and so he and John Hausman and a secretary and a nurse went out there. And it's sort of biblical, right? They go out in the desert and they they write this script, and then they come back and hand it to Orson Welles and then the, the difficulties begin because it was too, it, it got budgeted at too high a budget. So they had to start cutting, which is typical anyway. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it's been controversial who wrote what for from the beginning, but he, yeah, he didn't care. He didn't care till he did care and until he wrote something so good, he wanted his name on it too. And that was before Orson Welles started producing it. And before he saw 
what it turned into. And I always say, even though I'm Herman's biographer, it's Orson Welles' movie. It is iconic because of Orson Welles. Um, but yeah, what was it? The original script was 300 and some pages long. And of course, that's way too long for a, any kind of Hollywood movie where the general rule of thumb is one minute per one page. I mean, <laughs> obviously, though, even with a film like that where the visuals go on, for, I mean, the opening of that film is, I've lost track of how long it is before we get, other than the word rosebud, uh, it's quite a bit. And, you know, how do you put that in a script, that that opening? I mean, I'm sure it, there was aspects of it because that was the good thing is that so much of Herman's background that he included in in the film or in his writing of it was things that he knew about from, you know, the whole how much of it was Hearst and how much of it was his imagination. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of both. Right. He had visited Hearst and, and had and, and was very impressed by Hearst, even though he wanted to um, chronicle Hearst's political changes. And that was that's that sort of political aspect is not as important in the finished movie, but that was very important to Herman. So obviously then he fought for, he did fight for um, credit, got it, or at least a, a joint credit, and was won his only Academy Award and the film's only Academy Award is as one of the writers of the film, and and uh, that in many ways is unfortunately that's the most people know about him is 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 that he, you know, co-wrote Citizen Kane and got the right. only Academy Award for from this period. Right. Well, I hope this rescues him because he's a fascinating person, and I had a, I didn't know him, of course. I had a lot of affection for him, however. And Ben Mankiewicz, his son, told me that he had this little appearance. His grandson, Ben is Frank's son, told me that uh, Herman had a little appearance in uh, the front page. So it's about five minutes in, and he it's he's at a speakeasy trying to get in. And you see his face, and he has lines and everything. So that I was very years into working on it when I actually heard his voice for the first time. And he was 33 years old in this, you know, in this little bit. So I actually saw him. So, of course, um, he continues. I mean, this is, wasn't the end of his career in Hollywood, although it was close at that point, because as you point out, he, di he dies barely 10 years later. Um, but uh, we then move on to, to Joe being by himself in Hollywood. And, of course, as we've already talked about, Joe was much more successful in Hollywood and, and obviously long longer in Hollywood. Uh, he made as both a producer, writer, director, and as we talked about earlier, Joe got into directing to partly to, to help keep control over the material that he cared about, that he wrote, and, 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 and many things like that. He totally got into directing. He always considered himself a writer. And actually, Joe had a, a longer career, and he lived a lot longer, but I guess he was, as you were saying that, I was thinking, well, actually, he was in Hollywood from 1929 and he left in 51, Herman was still alive. Herman died in 1953, but the, the movie business, the studio system was deteriorating because they had been forced to um, sell their theaters. So, um, and television and bowling. And, you know, there were all kinds of reasons people weren't going to the movies every week. So that was um, a, a deteriorating situation and Joe and many others bailed. And Joe came back to New York. He wanted to raise his children outside the company town. And Joe, again, like Herman, he wanted to write plays. 
who wanted to write movies, uh, novels. He had visions beyond movies. Neither of them valued their work in the movies, in their in the movies until the very end. And of course, that's how they live on. So there was that great irony. And but yes, Joe wanted to control what he had written on the page. He wanted it to go up on the screen that way. And the irony is, to me anyway, that the best movies, my favorites, are the ones he did when he was still working for 20th Century Fox and under the control of Daryl F. Zanuck. Once he went out on his own, they became much less disciplined. And while they're always, there's always something to look at, to listen to, they get kind of floppier and not as good, in my opinion. That's my taste. You, you also, but this is where going back to where we talked about Herman. This is where using your sources was so interesting because you were able to discuss the changes that were made. Like if he had a, a an original a novel or something that that he was adapting for screen, and or something of his own, say from a play or whatever. The whole discussions that you do to go over about how they were going to make changes and how he was forced sometimes to make changes for budgetary reasons and such, or that the studio would say, well, this is great, but cut out this whole one part completely because we don't need it and things like that is so interesting because it showed uh, the the whole concept of, of development, which I think sometimes the average person doesn't even think about. What what do we, what do we mean when we say a movie is in a development? And this does a good right. job. I mean, this, and some of these are still you know to this day is is still goes on in development. Right, and they want happy endings. Right, that's an American very American thing. It's got to have a happy ending, and the book has a sad ending, but there's a happy ending in the movie. And then of course you spend a large amount of time with probably. As as you basically pointed out, the film that pretty much did him in, maybe not right away, but close to, and that was Cleopatra. And yeah, it kind of did. I I call it BC and AC before Cleo. He had life before Cleopatra and life after Cleopatra, and it it was a devastating experience for Joe. He was um, he started in 1961, so he would have been um, about 52, and. He had been a big success. He left Hollywood at the peak of his career. He had had back to, he was a record that's never been equaled, back-to-back writer and director Oscars for first 1949's A Letter to Three Wives and then All About Eve, which still has a record, has a record of how many Oscar nominations that La La Land also replicated and Titanic, 14 nominations. But um he came to New York thinking he was going to, you know, sort of have it all and have control over everything. And um, he was writing, he was working on a screenplay of Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet, which was very much a kind of, of intellectual exercise that Joe liked to work on. When the studio came to him and said, we're working on this Cleopatra and we need you to help save Cleopatra because we need Cleopatra to save 20th Century Fox, which was in trouble as all the studios were. Fox was selling off its its land, which became Century City, et cetera. So Joe, they had a, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, it was not a contract employee anymore. She had a very high paying contract and Fox and the board of directors, I might be getting too technical, but it really is a business story, said, you've got to start filming. And the 
Ruben Mamillion, who was Joe's predecessor, said, but we don't really have a script completed. And they said, it doesn't matter. She's on the payroll. You have to start filming. So it's it's like 101. Don't start filming till you have a have a script because ordinarily you're not filming in continuity. You're filming everything that takes place on one set at a time. You don't go back and forth and leave these gigantic expensive sets empty and so forth. So um, at some point, Mumillion quit several times and was hired back. And at some point he quit because they, and they didn't take him back because they had gotten Joe to agree for a lot of money to come in and rescue them. And his agent said, you just hold your nose for 15 weeks and take the money. So two How years many years later, did I was going to say? Right. Two years later, Joe's health was broken. He, it was humiliating. At the end, he was fired. He was taken off the, taken off at the very end and blamed for all the excesses and said to have brought down 20th Century Fox. It was just devastating. And what had happened was he was ending up directing what he had written. He'd write at night. He'd direct during the day. He was shooting up with all kinds of medicines to keep himself awake, to try to go to sleep. So he ruined his health. He was kind of addicted for a while. And uh, he went on to, to do several more movies, but he was never the same. And then he went into a 1972, which was Sleuth, um, was a triumph. And, and he died in 1993 and he never had, he didn't have another movie produced after that. And in 1972, he was 63. He was not deteriorated in any way. So it was just tragic. And it was not till the end of his life that he came to terms with, yeah, I really did do some good movies. You know, I am leaving something behind. And it was very sad. I mean, Cleopatra, I mean, how not to make a movie is the story of Cleopatra. But Hollywood never learns because then we let a director have total control and we make Heaven's Gate and ruin another studio. Uh, There's where a director had total control, but because, uh, you know, the studio gave him, in this particular case, Liz Taylor and Elizabeth Taylor had total control and uh, the comings and going. I mean, just the whole story of Cleopatra, the making of Cleopatra is more interesting than the final film in many ways because of all the... Well, it's right. I mean, you you could have, he was even saying, don't take her off the payroll. Even though she's expensive, you don't have to have all these other expenses till we know what it is we're going to do. It was, it was a mess. And artistically, it was humiliating to him because he wanted two movies. He wanted Caesar and Cleopatra and Antony and Cleopatra, two two-hour movies. And they kept cutting and cutting and cutting. So he was very embarrassed by the result also. But to be blamed, it's bad enough to have something done to you, but to be blamed for doing what you were saying the opposite of, of to do was just enraging. And when I was writing that chapter, my husband read the draft and goes, that didn't really happen, did it? And I go, yeah, it really did. It was just so unfair. Right. So obviously one of the great things, we, they obviously both have legacies for what they did, both uh, in Hollywood and in other places, but they also have family legacies, which I think is is always also so interesting. Um, I know people probably have heard the name, as you mentioned it earlier, Frank Mankiewicz, and I've probably heard Frank Mankiewicz's name before I knew 
of the other main coincidences as much because Frank was so involved with polit- with democratic politics in the 60s and and later in particular with people like Robert Kennedy and when he was running mm-hmm. for president in 68 so Frank Mankiewicz has been is well known in the political realm as you point out and then of course the rest of the family did work as well and and Ben Mankiewicz to this day is, is still works at Turner Classic Movies and does does other work film related as a film historian so the Mankiewicz family is still there Yes, it's, it was interesting to me in the years that I was working on the book because I would say I'm writing about Herman and Joe Mankiewicz and people would ask me, oh, is he? Any, are they any relation to, and whoever they named showed me where their interest was. Josh Mankiewicz is on, who is Ben's brother. Josh and Ben are Frank's sons and he is on Dateline. So he's on, on television all the time. Um, Herman's older son, Don, was a very successful screenwriter and novelist. He wrote a prize-winning novel, Trial, and um, a lot of screenplays and television um, uh, episodes and and pilots. And his son, John, is a successful screenwriter as well and TV writer. And he's still writing. His daughter, Jane, who doesn't write anymore, wrote for The New Yorker. John and Jane were third generation New Yorker writers because Don had pieces in the New Yorker too. And Herman had a third child, a daughter, Johanna Davis, who was a writer and wrote a novel. And she was married to Peter Davis, who's still alive. Johanna died, but Peter uh, won the uh, Academy Award for Hearts and Minds, a documentary about Vietnam. And their, their two sons are both writers and Nick actually is finishing a, he's going to have a book about the Mankiewicz family too. That'll be out next summer. So I'm yeah. eager to see. And uh, then on the Joe side, Joe had four children and Tom Mankiewicz, his second son, his third son actually um, was a very successful screenwriter and script doctor. And he did a lot. For example, he did James Bond. James Bond. Quite right. A bit. Right. He's, and he's, he's um, well known for his James Bond work. Yes. Yeah. And he, uh, in fact, I was watching Dragnet the other night and I was talking to his sister or emailing with her, whatever, Alex Mankiewicz, who was Rosemary, the third wife's daughter, the only, each of them had a daughter at the very end of all their sons. And um, she was a girl at the time and she got to go on the set. And I said, with, you know, uh, um, Dan Aykroyd, et cetera, they look like they're having so much fun. And she goes, yeah, I think they were having too much fun. They really need to get to work and so forth. Tom Hanks, et cetera. Right. So he directed that too, I think. And that's why it was so nice at the end of the book that you had the family tree in there because oh, yeah. it really does a good job of showing everything top to down. And, and it, it's just unbelievable that a Thank family you. can have that much um, um, uh, talent in it. Right. But, right. They're all witty and funny. It's very confusing because Joe's first child was born in 1936 and his last was born in 1966. So they don't line up. His family doesn't line up and then they don't. And and he was already a half a generation behind Herman. So it's extremely confusing. And there's a lot of overlap. A lot of them were born. A lot of the grandchildren were born in the 60s, like Alex, Joe's child. So, you know, it's confusing. So as we're sort of gotten to the end of the book, I have to ask the question, and that is obviously the the David Fincher movie, Mank, 
on Netflix uh, based on a uh, screenplay of his father's that his father supposedly been trying to make for 20 years, wanted to try to get made for 20 years, and so it was finally made on Netflix. I have to ask the question, and that's what were your thoughts of it? Well, first of all, I heard about it practically from the beginning of when I was on the project because he'd been trying to get it development hell, right? He had been, Mm -hmm. David Fincher loved movies from childhood because his father loved movies and his father was a journalist and his father retired at about 61. I know a lot of this because I interviewed David Fincher. Um, I've got a piece coming out, I hope this month, but, uh, and it's been in the press a lot. So his father thought he would write a screenplay. And David hadn't made movies, but he was clearly going to make movies. You know, he, he just loved them from childhood. So David had read these articles by the critic Pauline Kael, who in 1971 wrote these New Yorker pieces, basically taking credit away from Orson Welles and handing it to Herman for the screenplay. And so he thought, David thought Herman sounded like an interesting character and suggested to his father, why don't you write a movie about uh, Herman Mankiewicz. So the father wrote originally, he read about it and he, oh yeah, I mean, he was totally pro writer, you know, as opposed to the evil director Orson Welles. So he wrote a screenplay about that. And David said, I'm not interested in that. And so his father gradually, I, have you seen the movie? Yes. I don't want to. Okay. So there's a, a subplot about the 1934 gubernatorial California right. race when Upton Sinclair runs and um, that is a true um, historical um, incident uh, with fake news ads that MGM was involved in. Herman's involvement that is, is put into the movie is not true. That's fictional. It's, you know, it's a subplot in there for a reason. But the father had the idea of doing this. And little by little, he did a lot of drafts over the years. And then he died of pancreatic cancer in 2003. And David still hadn't been able to make the movie because he wanted black and white and no one would ever let him do it in black and white. So cut to years later, Netflix says, okay, you can make it in black and white. We have this very stylish movie. As far as how I reacted, um, I had mixed feelings going into it because I was excited at the idea that it would raise Herman's visibility. That was a good thing. Maybe more people would be interested in the book, but I was very nervous about it because as, you know, as a biographer, we all, devote hours and thought and so much effort to getting it right and getting as close to accuracy as we can. If someone does a biopic, that becomes that person. That defines the person, even who shot Kennedy. I mean, that movie then became the definition of what happened, whether it's true or not. So I was very apprehensive about the movie and also about how Joe would be portrayed, because I think dramatically it's easy to set up a contrast of this oily, opportunistic brother and this noble, speak truth to, fa- to power, self-destructive mm-hmm. older brother. And he didn't do that. He really used Joe for certain dramatic points in the story. And, um, and I thought they created, first of all, so... Everybody like uh, Kaufman, the people cast as Kaufman and Selznick and Louis B. Muir really look like the real protagonist. <laughs> and Herman, Orson Welles sounds like Orson Welles. Actually. Oh my gosh, yes, right. So Herman, does, uh, Gary Oldman doesn't really look like Herman, but as far as I could tell, he captured the Herman that was in my mind. And I was really very excited. But the first time I 
saw a, a trailer online, I started crying because first of all, it was, they'd been in my head for all those years. Second of all, it was in black and white. It was sort of like time traveling for me. It was really very moving. And then when I saw the movie the first time, Tuppence Middleton does look like Sarah a little bit, sort of a glamorized version of Sarah, but the heart-shaped face. Um, Joe and Herman and uh, uh, Herman really, uh, Tom Pelfrey and Gary Oldman don't really exactly look like Herman, but they have the right uh, accent, I think. Mm-hmm. They, they worked on that from listening to Joe because they did. Yeah, really if Gary Oldman's in a movie, you're, and especially if he's playing a real-life person, you know he's going to do the work. Right. Right. But he had to, he, what he did was he listened to Joe because he didn't have Herman and he sort of guessed, but my husband's family's from New York and, and it's that same kind of upper middle class educated New York kind of accent. I don't, I don't know if it's specifically New York, but I was very touched and, and very much, they were like the people in my head, the first I'd say time and a half. Now it's just a movie that I enjoy watching and I've watched a lot of times, especially when I was looking for certain quotes. So I was thrilled. But again, it, it carried on this emphasis on Herman. <laughs> I'm thinking, what about Joe? That's okay. But yeah, it was. But uh, it's interesting that it, I think that's one of the reasons why I said, well, you know what, this is a good time to continue to, to, uh-huh. to interview you, even though, like we said, the right. book's been out for a while now, but that's okay. Because as you, as the movie has continued this interest in him, and as as we know, there, it, next year there's going to be more material out about them, right. and which is which is great because uh, uh, anything we can learn from from old Hollywood, I think, is just so interesting. And I think Joe's got so much. There's so much about Joe's life and the end of the studio system that that can that that's there. And I and given that. Herman was gone before the the studio system really ended, but Joe was there in the while it was going on, and then as it ended, and uh, it's just an unbelievable amount of historical information that's available just through the life of Joe. Oh, I should also add when I was talking about sources that Joe's biographer Kenneth Geist, who's died, Mary, Richard Merriman, who right. wrote Hermits, and, and Ken Geist, I talked to both of them. And Ken Geist was very helpful to me. And he had, he had recordings of his interviews and he made them available to me. And his book is, has a, is cited. It's very, it's a very good book. And he does more uh, movie analysis. If people are interested in going a little deeper, I couldn't because I had too many movies and and two subjects. I I certainly went through the movies, but um, Ken Geist's book does it deep more deeply if people want to buy it or yeah. get it from the library or something you, like you that. do very well as far as recognizing these sources because ken geist is an actual character in the book more or less because right, uh, right. it's Joe? not just that oh you didn't God. just discuss him as far as what he did but you're also because he was so important at the time you know what he was doing and so he actually is important to the overall story which is which is great so it helps that that's all in there because it, it you know his importance becomes obvious because of the way he's included oh i forgot about that that in fact i actually that's another section i had more about because they wrote horrible things about each other joe, you know joe felt ken could control his legacy and it was very upsetting and ken got mad at joe for stopping uh, contributing and trying to get it stopped 
So they were uh, writing scurrilous things about each other, some of which I had in but took out. <laughs> so obviously now it's been quite a while since the book's been out. Um, you're obviously doing other work. Uh, I don't know whether you've got anything in the in the planned for long form or whether it's going to it's just going to continue with the, the shorter materials that you've been writing or, or what your plans are? Well, my, my long-term goal is to write more books. I love writing books. It's short form is fun. It's instant gratification because you write it and then it, you get to see it published. But I love the depth of, of going into depth and having spent all these years learning about the movie business, I don't want to desert it. I have uh, spent all this time, creating a body of knowledge that I have. And I, and I love that, that period too. And I actually have two ideas. One is a family and one is a person and I'm torn between the two and I can't tell you. No, that's okay. I understand. I I ask this question every time I interview someone and they almost always say the same thing is that (laughs) until there's, until it's to a point where you know what's going on and it's all, you can talk about it. I agree. You don't want to talk about it now because you don't want to give other people ideas. And you also don't I, even know yet whether you're going to be able to find enough material to make it a, a, a valuable uh, idea. Right. I would say, and there's a third factor, and that is if you talk about it too much, you dissipate the energy. Right. You know, you, you, you want to keep keep it on a boiling inside. So they're yes. both. I've got two pots on a boil, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think I can write two books at the same time, so that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, my my big resolution for 2021 was to not read multiple books at the same time. To try to just read a book from start to finish, and before I go on to the next one. And I'm it. It's only January 6th, and it's going to be hard because there's like three books I want to read, and and it's like, when do I have time to read all three of them at the same? <laughs> Well, you know, that's interesting because one of the pandemic's gifts to me has been audiobooks. I had not listened to books before. And um, because the gym was closed, I couldn't go to classes, uh, exercise classes. I started walking a couple of hours a day and there was nowhere to go because everything was closed. So I started getting bored. So I finally let myself start listening to books and I love listening to books, but I try to keep that for outside walking. So I'm certainly reading something or some things at home. So you could do that. You can tell yourself, well, this this is my living room book and this is my kitchen book. So Yeah, but I tend to be I'm an ebook reader and believe it or not, Amazon has the possibility that if you have both the audio book and the written book, you know, the ebook of the same book in your library, you can go back and forth and it will keep track of where you were yes, from one to the that. other so that right. you can actually read one book that way. But anyway, it's just, anyway, that's, that's my issues. <laughs> but as I say, I'm glad we had a chance to talk. I mean, this is, I, I think we gave the book, we went through it in pretty good detail and there, and, and your notes and your bibliography and all the different films they were involved. I mean, you could literally make a cla- a, a film class using uh what these two men did in hollywood uh that would be very interesting and and and, and eye-opening so uh it's Thank great you. that you were able to put something together especially for someone who hadn't written about film before because that can right. be any kind of when you get into a topic and 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 you're right though you wrote about it when business well business of movies is still important but during this period in particular so your business background definitely helped with with telling this story so uh 
I'm glad we have been able to talk about it even this far along after it was released. Thank you. I've loved talking with you about it. It was really fun to revisit it. <laughs> well, as I say, this is my first interview that I've done in 2021, so I'm glad we started off with, Me too. with this one, and I really enjoyed it, and uh, I really appreciated your time, Sydney. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joel. Thanks to Sydney Stern for this great conversation. Her book is a spectacular addition to the understanding of the golden age of Hollywood. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.